good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And you're hearing us over EWTN Radio. Welcome to our program today. Our guest today is Donald Bry. And it's a great privilege to have you, Don. Join Thank us. you. It's a privilege to be here. You're a, a lawyer over at the local small city of Columbus. <laughs> Quite a bit bigger than our little town here where the Coming Home Network is located. But it's good to have you join us. And uh, those of you who had a chance to listen to The Journey Home on, uh, on Monday evening, uh, we're able to hear Don's full um, story. And as we continue on that, uh, we didn't have that much chance on the Monday night episode to delve into Scripture. So that's kind of what we do in this program, give you a little chance to, to dig deeper in Scripture. Um, Donald is a former United Methodist, a former agnostic, a former evangelical, and a former Episcopalian who was received into the Roman Catholic Church in 1996. Don graduated from Yale Law School in 1981 and has practiced law in Columbus, Ohio since then in the areas of election law, ethics, litigation, and nonprofit organizations. Don and his wife worship at St. Patrick Church in Columbus, a Dominican parish. Uh, the specific uh, interests of your legal practice uh, probably uh, are very active today. Is that an understatement? <laughs> We have enough to keep ourselves busy. I was going to say, I mean, even in, in ways that some of these moral issues, especially that deal with the the medical health care issues, mm -hmm. are, are have hit us in a way that three or four years ago, I don't think we ever anticipated that mm -hmm. this was going to be at us face-to-face -face on this issue. And, uh, um, you know, this, although I, I will say that I often hear people um, shocked by the relationship between our government and our faith. In some ways, I just got to remind people, you know, it's always been a, a, a battle for our faith in this country for as Catholics from the very beginning, Christians or Catholics. We've always had a bit of a battle. Well, there's always been a battle, not just in this country. You know, the whole conflict between Christ and culture is not unique. Our kingdom is not of this world. When Jesus said this, he didn't really mean that it was. Nonetheless, human coercion is essential for there to be an ordered society. The problem is the people who are running it are human and therefore fallen, and therefore there are consistently um, ways in which it gets it wrong. The problem is the problem that we have today is that we need to fight as best we can for the truths that we understand. You know, before we get into the scriptures, if I could ask you another question, Don, because uh, you have come from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, for part of that time, you were maybe a card-carrying member of the Methodist Church, but but maybe not on fire for Jesus. For, for, I, I think that's fair, although I can't remember what I did with the card. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yet, later, as a, a committed evangelical, uh, and then continuing an evangelical as an Episcopalian, but committed to evangelical doctrine and, and values, it seems to me there's always been a, a struggle between if I'm a practicing practicing Christian in a culture, what is my responsibility to change culture? Or is it merely my responsibility to live my life in holiness and let the culture go to you-know-where in a handbasket? Well, as you know, Niebuhr talked about Christ of culture, Christ against culture, Christ transforming culture, different ways of approaching that. Yeah. Jesus actually told us what to do and what he wants of us. He wants us to become saints. Saints involve acts of charity. Acts of charity involve acts that express our love in concrete as well as in spiritual manners. There are works of, of spiritual mercy. There are works of corporal mercy, and we're supposed to do both of them. The acts of politics, as the Catechism talks about, is primarily the duty of the laity to be salt and light in their culture, to transform it as best they can, to fight for human life and human dignity. You know, in our times, you know, particularly about the sanctity of human life, the, the sanctity of marriage, the assaults on human conscience, the assaults yeah. on, on the, the dignity of the human person. And we can look back fondly, perhaps with rose-colored eyes, at other ages where it might have seemed easier. 
But this is the time and this is the place that our Lord Jesus Christ had placed us. And therefore, if we have the right to vote, we have the duty to form our consciences so that we vote in such a way as to advance those values and those commitments that are a true expression of charity towards our brothers and sisters as citizens of this country. All right, excellent. Because the reason I bring that up because it, you know different Christian traditions have a completely different idea on what our responsibility is to change the culture around us. You know, someone more passive about it. And that I salt's not much good if it stays in the salt shaker. <laughs> exactly right. Light under a bushel and all that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's right. We're we're called to make a difference in mm-hmm. this world. So, some would have written that off as works. No, that's how we live out our faith. And some would say, as James would, that if we're not doing that, then what's our faith? Right. I mean, and I think most evangelicals today would agree with that, although there there are some separatist groups. Most of them would say that faith produces works, whereas Catholics would say we are saved not only by what we think, but by what we will. What happened in the fall? Our our minds became darkened, our wills became weakened, our passions became disordered, and our bodies, our parts, have a tendency to fall apart. Well, Jesus wants to save all of those things. He wants to save our minds as well as our wills. And and Catholics and Protestants sometimes mean the same thing and use different language to get there. But certainly for a Catholic, an act of the will is an act of charity. And of course, the will can only act upon what the mind presents to it. So it's necessary for us to have well-formed minds and understanding of who Jesus is and what he requires of us. Yeah, a very incarnational understanding of our faith versus really a more Gnostic understanding where it's just what we think, not what we do with our bodies. A lot of aspects of our culture are exactly there, that our feelings are confused with our wills. Hmm. We can't always control our feelings, but we can, we can decide how we're going to live our lives. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've chosen some, some great verses and uh, that I, I'm assuming were a big part of your journey. Is that why you've chosen these more in general? I did, because a big part of my journey is what is the church and what authority does the church have? How can you, you, you we talked before we went on the air about the passage, uh, I think it was 1 Timothy 3.15 or something right. like that, right. uh, about how the, the, the church is, is the household of the living God, the pillar and the groundwork, uh, the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. But the church, according to Scripture, is the pillar, pillar and the bulwark of the truth, which begs the question, what is the church? What, how do you know what the church is? Why does a Catholic church claim to be the church that Jesus founded, and are its claims worthy of belief? As you look back before your conversion to the Catholic church, do you recall how you may have addressed that question as a Methodist or as an Evangelical or as an Episcopalian? At the time, I knew that Jesus had prayed for the unity of the church. He prayed that you might be one even as the Father and I are one in his last prayer, his lengthy prayer, before he died. And looking around, it was plain to me, as I think it is plain to most intellectually honest Christians, that the church is not united. Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox, of course, are big, big divides, but even among Protestantism, there are various strains that are inconsistent with each other, all claiming to be the true way in which Jesus Christ wants us to worship. You can claim that the differences aren't important, but some people say they are, and some people say they aren't. How do you decide that? So I believe that the church was truly divided and really didn't know how, how to put the pieces back together again. You know, you mentioned Monday night uh, uh, St. Lorenz's understanding of, of truth being kind of quasi-unanimous. Yes, yeah, St. Vincent of Lorenz, yes. St. Vincent of Lorenz. And I remember back in Protestant seminary that we used him, mm-hmm. his idea, but it was linked with Calvin's idea and maybe playing off something Augustine said to define the church as this essentially unidentifiable, invisible collection of believers throughout all times and all cultures, some in and outside a visible church. And that's what we called the church. And and I don't know, did you have that idea of it when you were back were a Methodist? Not so much. You know, because when I was an evangelical, I was really 
into the scriptures. I was reading them on a regular basis, and Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a city on a hill. The kingdom of God is like a lamp on a lampstand. The kingdom of God is something you can see, not just something you experience in, in, a, super, in a spiritual, invisible, sentimental way. Um, and yes, sentiment is part of it. We're human beings, we're, we're embodied, therefore we have passions. But they need to be trained uh, in, in, a, in a positive direction. So I always thought yeah. that the notion of a purely invisible church was helpful because there is a truth to that, but it wasn't sufficient because that's, that's not what Jesus had in mind. And I think the passages that we, we're going to talk about today bear that out. Yeah, an invisible church can't be a pillar and bulwark of anything. Or if it is, how are you going to know where it is? Exactly. How are you going to know whether, if it's invisible, how do you know whether you're on solid rock as opposed to sinking sand? And if you base St. Vincent's, Lorenz's St. Vincent of Lorraine wrote, I think in the four or five hundreds, I don't have the date, yeah. uh, looking back at the Trinitarian controversy. Yeah, and if you were to take that out of a visible church and just mean kind of the major, kind of almost a democratic idea that the Holy Spirit is kind of guiding people and the majority of people this than that, then there's no way identifying what is that majority. You can't ever take this survey, and is that all that, I mean, Look at our culture today with its survey after survey after survey. Just because maybe a growing majority of people around the world might be becoming more and more open, for example, to homosexuality, doesn't all of a sudden make it become right. Yeah, and I think if memory serves, it was Irenaeus who talked about the difficulties he had arguing with people who denied the Trinitarian faith of, of, of the, the Orthodox Christianity that when you quote from them to them from Scripture, they say, well, we're not following Scripture, we have a secret tradition that's inconsistent with that. And then when you talk about the tradition of the visible church, they, they deny that as well. So whether you appeal to Scripture or tradition, they're still going off the deep end because they follow sort of an invisible, unmeasurable sense of things that they claim to be superior to any sort of authority. All right, thank you, Don. Now, the first, you've chosen four sets of Scripture to, to look at dealing with this issue of the church. The first is, and they're all to a certain extent familiar, of course, the first is Matthew 16, 18 to 19. Let me read this, Don, and then go ahead and discuss it and how the part that this played in your own journey of faith in relationship to the church. Um, and, and this is quoting our Lord. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What I saw in this passage, um, you know, we, we've talked about the role of Peter in other contexts on the, on the show, I believe, but right. the church is built by Jesus. It's not a human construction. It's something that is a reality independent of our desires, independent of our hopes, independent of our experiences, because it is a gift. It is a gift of something that Jesus builds and gives to it. He also says, uh, the powers of death is this translation. I think the, the Greek is the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And of course, gates are not an offensive weapon. Yeah. <laughs> gates are what you attack when you're trying to take a city, when you are on the offense. But it says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And therefore, the church that Jesus founded is a church that still exists that the gates of hell have not prevailed against. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar and he is not our Lord. Um, we had a, I had to mention something humorous here because there's a couple of uh, Catholic radio stations that, of course, are, are broadcasting this. And I was not long ago out doing some talks to help promote Catholic Radio, and I strongly do. Hope all of you listening are supporting Catholic Radio. But the uh, uh, the head of Catholic Radio was speaking, and he was using as an example this passage mm -hmm. about our need to, you know, to charge the gates of hell, because mm -hmm. they won't prevail. Because he says that idea of the gates of hell won't prevail. It's not as if we're going to be attacked by any gates. He used the example of, hey, gates, anyone here been attacked by a gate? Right. And what was funny is my son Richard raised his hand because he had. <laughs> we have electric gates on our farm, and he's been knocked back by the electric wire on a few gates here and there. <laughs> Normally, gates don't attack us. But that's the point, is that 
these passive gates we are to charge as the church. And you charge in part because of the way Jesus formed the church. We can disagree about that, but Scripture has to be the foundation for our understanding of that. And one of the things that we have here is the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys were not given to the other apostles, but two chapters later in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus also tells the other 11 that what they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the, those apostles, at least, were given certain authority. Raises other questions, you know, did, who did they give it to? Who has it now? Does anybody have it now? But that is linked to what the church is. The church has certain authority over sin, over forgiveness of sin. Most Protestants, I think, would say that what that means is preaching the gospel. And if you accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. If you reject that, they're retained. And that's what it means to, to retain or, or to loose. But leaving that at one side, uh, whatever it is, it, from this passage alone, it is something that is given first to Peter and then to the other apostles. Yeah, and in essence, the evangelicals, as soon as you take this whole passage to not mean directly even Peter or the other apostles, but merely the faith of Peter, then all John chapter 14, 15, 16 are not about the apostles. That's about all of us. This is about all of us. The gates of hell are not mm -hmm. going to prevail against the faith in kind of a general way. The binding and loosing it gets watered down. It, it has to be because once you unzip the commitment of the apostles, the continuity in the church, all this stuff has to get watered down and spread out. My understanding is a lot of modern evangelicals don't make that argument anymore. It used to be a fairly popular argument. Most of them will agree that Petros and Petra are referring to Peter and that Peter has this authority, whatever his authority is, but they will deny that Peter had successors. Yeah, okay. And they might say if there was an early church, it was lost in the first couple centuries. You know, if there was any whatever church there was, was watered down and lost, and then, of course, rediscovered in the Reformation or even later. They, they will say that, but if they really want to rely upon the Bible, they might not want to say that the church disappeared or lost authority before it told us what the table of contents to the New Testament was. <laughs> Good point. Another passage you've chosen, then, is John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The importance of this passage for me was that people can argue, for example, M Matthew 16, Jesus said this would happen, doesn't mean it had already happened. Whenever it happened, it certainly happened by the time after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to uh, 10 of the 11. Uh, if you read the rest of, of John 20, uh, Thomas shows up later and, and is told to touch the hands and the sides and, and confesses, my Lord, my God. But Jesus breathed upon his apostles and gave them the Holy Spirit. And with giving them the Holy Spirit, he gave them certain authority to forgive sins and to retain sins. So the foundation of the church, the, of the 12 apostles, or, or of the 11 apostles after Judas had hung himself, was that Jesus gave the authority, and it wasn't just a verbal thing, you're going to have this authority. The Son gives it to you. He also breathes upon them the Holy Spirit and gives them the Holy Spirit, confirming them in the role that he had established for them to have. So and he, thus far, I think that evangelicals and, and Roman Catholics will agree that the apostles had authority. They had authority to declare the, the gospel with divinity. They had authority to forgive sins and to retain them, and, and you see this in Acts later on where, mm -hmm. for example, Ananias and, and his wife are, are condemned by the apostles for trying to cheat the church. Um, and, and that's kind of a pretty good example of retaining a sin and having fairly direct consequences as, as they fall down dead. But, and authority. 
And authority, yes. Uh, but, but you, you can't get much more authority than that. Because they, that Ananias and his wife had lied not just to the church, but to the Holy Spirit, because yeah. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church. And therefore, to, to rebel and to be dishonest towards the church is to rebel and be dishonest to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know, it made me think about, you had mentioned about the, you know, after Judas, there was just the 11, uh, and of course, quickly replaced by, by Matthias. Yeah, that's... And, and one of the reasons, remember the criteria, was that it was of people who had been there from the beginning and all the way to the end. And, and I'm thinking about that because often we think of apostolic succession as after, but really it also began in the beginning. The apostolic succession is the continuity from the old all the way. There's no break mm-hmm. ever. It was all the old through the coming of Christ and from the beginning of his revelation, as he reveals himself at the baptism, there's the continuity, and it's of those that were there. And then they continue on, and those are the ones that receive this Holy Spirit, and then receive this authority to forgive sins, to bind and loose, and then they're passed on. So this continuity isn't just to the apostles, to the baptism of Jesus, but really from Adam and Eve. You know, the continuity of the church all the way and the importance of that as the foundation for our church. Let's, um, we're going to a couple more that you want to get to. Let's, let's jump to this verse because we're going to take a break a little bit. I want to keep an eye on that clock because uh, this takes us back to Acts. Acts chapter 1, 20 through 26. And we were, as I was just mentioning this, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of jumping ahead a little bit, but let's, there's kind of the background for Acts beginning with verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. In his office, let another take. So one of the men who have accompanied us through all, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lot for them, and they f- the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. But well, we were on the same page, Don, were we, we? We were certainly on the same page. And as we talked about before, the term office, which is, I think, the Revised Standard tr- Translation, um, others talk about leadership. The Greek is uh, episkopon, which is the same as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 109.8. And his episcopon, episcopon means bishop. Uh, the Dewey Rams and the King James Version both translate this as bishopric, let his bishopric another take. So one, they're associating enrolling with the apostles as, as enrolling with the 11 apostles being taking a someone's episcopon, taking someone's office of bishop. And the term bishop, the term episcopon, is used later in the New Testament of people who were not with them from the beginning. Uh, or even the term apostle. For example, Paul was not there from the beginning. Right. Mark and Luke, were, who wrote infallible gospels, were not there from the, from the beginning, or certainly were not enrolled with the eleven. And then, of course, uh, Paul writes to various folks in, uh, about appointing bishops and the office of bishops of people in, in Asia Minor who are bishops, episcopon, who were not part of the original 11. The point of this passage for me is it wasn't just Jesus saying, you 11, and then once you die out, church is on its own, in some fashion rather, but rather there is an office which was created by Jesus Christ that was given authority, that received the Holy Spirit, and those who had that office then enrolled Matthias. Now, some people will argue that they did this before Pentecost, and therefore they didn't fully have the Holy Spirit. But in John 20, they already had the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them that authority already. When the Holy Spirit came down into the fashion of second chapter of Acts, it came down in a a powerful way of manifesting certain gifts for the building up of the church. But they were already acting with the authority and with the Holy Spirit that Jesus had breathed upon them in in his resurrection, because this portion of Acts is after he ascended. Very good. When we come back from the break, I want to continue on that because... I do believe that apostolic succession is more than merely passing on the baton. Mm-hmm. There's a wider breadth to that, which you saw in Mark 
Luke, and Paul. We'll look at that in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodau, your host, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by uh, Don Bry. He's a, a lawyer in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, a convert to the church. And we've been looking at scriptures that were key to your own coming to understand the authority of the church, Don. And I, we were looking just before the break at Acts chapter 1 um, and this uh, filling of the bishopric and of uh, of Judas when he was gone, and then, of course, Matthias. And I thought just a couple things we could reflect on that, one of which is what you see in, in uh, the a key aspect of this is that apostolic succession is not merely a passing on of a baton from one bishop of his bishopric to the next bishop of that bishopric, as if throughout time, it doesn't just end with the 12, but that there will be 12 forever, but that even during the lives of the 12, this apostolic college expands in a breadth to Paul, to, I would say, Barnabas, would some consider Barnabas, mm-hmm. or Mark and Timothy and others. And it explodes very quickly even beyond that. For, for example, after Peter left Antioch, he became Bishop of Rome, of course. But one of his successors was um, Ignatius of Antioch, who was persecuted and sent to Rome to be killed. And he wrote a bunch of letters to a bunch of churches telling them to obey their bishops. More than, you know, he wrote seven letters, but that indicates that there were already a college of bishops in the early 100s. I think he was around 107, if memory serves, that he was, he was heading over, over to Rome. And you also have, um, even earlier than that, Clement of Rome, who I think is the third or fourth pope, who was writing from Rome to folks in Asia Minor, or ordering them to reinstate the bishops that they, or the, that they had tried to kick out because of their authority. Now, number one, he's exercising jurisdiction and authority over a place that he's not bishop over. Yeah. And he's acting like he has some authority over places that already have bishops, but he's talking about the facts of the bishops. And one of the historical anecdotes that I found most compelling to talk about how this developed very early on, as we know, John the Apostle was in Asia Minor for much of his post-resurrection ministry. And one of the young men who was about 30 when John passed away was a guy named Polycarp. 
Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna, who was martyred at a very old age, at, in around 155. And one of the people who learned from Polycarp the gospel was a guy named Irenaeus, who then moved to Gaul, what is now France, and wrote some fairly important uh, writings in, in the late 100s. And, and in there, he's talking to people who don't accept the fullness of the Christian faith and are claiming that they have some internal knowledge. And he says, look, this isn't a matter of speculation. It's a matter of revelation. And if you want to know what the, what the faith is, what the true Orthodox faith is, you look at what the bishops are doing. And, he said, you don't need to look at all the bishops. Look at what the Bishop of Rome is teaching because they're the successor of, of Peter, and, and he, he lays them out. It wasn't a full explication of, of papal infallibility as we have it, but it was an explanation that the bishops have authority to teach and control. And Ignatius got the gospel from Polycarp, and Polycarp got the gospel from John the Apostle, and John the Apostle got it from Jesus. And that's pretty good pedigree. Yeah, and from your background as well as my own, we kind of assumed that there was some place in these early years of the church when uh, the authentic church was cast aside and these new ideas arose, the, the hierarchy, the authority of the Bishop of Rome, uh, the rituals, the liturgies, at least my evangelical background kind of assumed all that. The point is, as you just traced this references to the bishops that were already present in all these places. There's no literature anywhere that starts any of this. It was already in place, assumed, uh, com uh, complete from the edge and the edge of the church from the very beginning. And to me, that speaks a very loud voice, even though it sounds kind of silent, that the stuff you're talking about was accepted from the beginning. And as we talked about in the Matthew 16 passage, if the gates of hell weren't supposed to prevail against it, Jesus didn't say the gates of hell won't prevail against it until the last of you 11 pass away, and then it's hell in a handbasket. <laughs> you know, he said it won't prevail against it. The church was still there. It was there in the form of bishops who had an exercised authority. All right. Um, this, uh, the next passage that you pointed out is Acts 15, 28 through 29, which is really two verses in some sense pulled out of a very important chapter of the first council of the church in Jerusalem. And it is, I mean, when you're talking about the authority of the church, is all the things you've talked about. You know, you got later Clement sending a letter from Rome to Corinth. Right. You know, what, what kind of authority is that? Well, here you got a bunch gathered in Jerusalem with a decision that's going to affect the whole church. And you've pulled uh, two verses for us to look out, out of that context. Verse 28, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from unchastity. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. As you alluded to, this is talking about the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem dealt with how do you deal with Gentile converts to Christianity. Judaism requires members of Judaism, to men, to be circumcised. This was sort of an off-putting requirement for, for adults, adult males. <laughs> you know, being circumcised yeah, it might be okay for infants, but for adult males this was somewhat of a painful process. And more to the point, the question was how much of the ritual law of the Old Testament was actually part of the natural law that's binding upon all human beings, and therefore part of the, the Christian covenant. Was Christianity merely a sect within Judaism, or was it a new covenant that did not reject Judaism, but build upon it? Just as when you teach someone to, to eat with a spoon rather than with their fingers is not inconsistent with the later teaching them to eat with a fork. And what struck me about this is the Council of Jerusalem exercised authority and told people, you don't have to be circumcised, but you have to abstain from uh, raw meat and meat that's been a sacrifice to idols and from unchastity. And they said that not just because 
you know, we had a vote, and this is what the, the decision is going to be today. They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The church and council claim to have the authority of the Holy Spirit in order to order and direct people to do and to not do certain things. This, by the way, is also a reason why the church was not just a matter of, we'll preach the gospel, then people will be saved if they believed it, and they will be condemned if they don't. The church had authority to order people how they act. And, and Clement of Rome, writing in, in 95 or 96 AD, was, was doing the same thing in a different context, as we, we talked about before. I remember when I looked at this passage in my own journey, something struck me. Don, and I wonder if you would talk about the significance of this, and that is the significance of this council overturning that which in the Old Testament was proclaimed to Abraham as a, as a law that would be for all times. And to a certain extent, the reason that you had the consul in Jerusalem in, in uh, Acts 15 was because the leaders of the church were encountering essentially some sola scriptura folk, mm-hmm. some, some Judaizers who were insisting on the letter of the law of the Old Testament scriptures. There was no New Testament scriptures yet. They were being written, as you obviously can see when you see the book of Acts. They are being written. The scriptures were only the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say? Circumcision is a law for God's people for all time. The audacity of this group of men to say no longer. And it's interesting, too, because there is an old Leviticus passage of what happens if, if you eat flesh, human flesh. Well, you're expelled from the community. And what happened to the Christians who received the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist? They were expelled from the Jewish community. You know, n- not exactly what, what they probably thought they had in mind when they were drafting the, the Old Testament law, but, but there it is. <laughs> right. But that, to me, that right away addresses the issue that when the Holy Spirit is given by our Lord Jesus to these men, as you read in that passage, that they have an authority and if that means taking an Old Testament law that no longer applies, they have the authority to say that. For example, another thing that happened about the same time, they're no longer worshiping on Saturday. Mm-hmm. They're still meeting in the temple on Saturday, but now they're meeting on the Lord's Day, in the eighth day. And that becomes the focal point of the church. The church has this authority. It isn't a group of guys gathered that vote and, and the authority doesn't rest in the vote or even the resting in taking some kind of lot. It rests in the authority that is in the gift of the Holy Spirit to these leaders of the church. I, I think that's right. And all Christians, except for Seventh-day Adventists, do worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday because this was the ancient and universal practice of the church. And Seventh-day Adventist is an American creation or it came into existence in the United States, they, they read the passage differently and, and decided that's what it meant. But that's, you know, that's contrary to the experience and practice of every other Christian group in the world in every other time. And to a certain extent, they're right. If you're going to reject the authority of the church, then the question is, all right, the rest of you Christians, why aren't you worshiping on Saturday? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you? It isn't just because, well, the early church changed it. What do you mean the early church changed it? The leaders, the bishops of the early church. That's why we have a Bible we can trust. And in fairness, as you pointed out, the the folks that read the Old Testament, there were two ways you could read it. You could read these requirements as binding not only on Jews but upon everyone, or read them as binding only on Jews and not upon Gentile Christians. Who got to decide what the true interpretation was? The church decided, and the church didn't say, this is what we're writing in our rule book today, and if we have another convention next week, we can change it, which actually the church can do about some things, if they're purely disciplinary rather than doctrinal. Right. But it said that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not just as this is, this is how the majority vote came out. You know, maybe they'll vote next uh, convention differently. Well, even the things that you read there from that passage, you know, this list that was in that letter that to be distributed, they weren't all issues of faith and morals. They mm-hmm. were more discipline, right. uh, that therefore 
are not exactly the way we live our faith today, nor do our non-Catholic brothers and sisters don't live by that short list that we've recognized that the Holy Spirit continues to guide. And part of it is because God knows what is good and what is not good for the human person. And what is the very first thing in the Bible that is declared to be not good? It is not good for man to be alone. And to say that, that it's just me and Jesus and I'm alone, and that's my, my relationship with God. Yes, it's good to have a personal relationship with God. Every Mass, I fall on my knees and, and say, I'm not worthy to receive you or not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And then I receive Jesus Christ personally, body, blood, soul, and divinity, on my lips and in my heart. There's no more personal way of receiving Jesus Christ than that. And yet, I do that as part of a community. I do that as part of a church, because Jesus did not leave us as orphans. He promised that he wouldn't. He left us with a father, the Pope. Papa means Pope. And, and he left us with brothers and sisters, not only who have gone before us, but who are among us now. We, we confess our sins to what, and ask for prayers for one another and by one another, as we're commanded to do in Scripture. Let's take another break, Don. We'll come back in a bit. We're going to look at, what, Matthew chapter 28 when we get back from the break. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Don Bry, and you're hearing this on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Our guest today is Don Bry. And let's, let's, let's look at one more passage while we have some time, Don. Well, maybe we'll have time for another, but we'll look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Very familiar passage called, often called the Great Commission. Uh, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. This passage obviously stands for a number of different things, including the, the duty to evangelize. But what strikes me about it is he ordered his apostles, the, the eleven, to teach in his name, to exercise the authority that he commanded them to exercise, and promised them that this college of bishops, this college of, of, of apostles, that he would be with them always until the end of the age. And he's talking about that in the concept in the, of giving them this authority. Well, the apostles have gone to their reward. They're not on earth in flesh and blood anymore. And yet Jesus Christ's promise lasts forever and his promise to be with us always until the end of the age means that the apostles and their successors have Jesus with them to do the teaching with authority and to observe the things that were commanded and to do so with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he gave them until the end of the age. That necessarily means that there's someone who has that authority until even now even in the Middle Ages, even in the Renaissance era, even in the French Revolution, even in the Russian Revolution, in the Spanish Civil War, the Mexican Civil War, and the pathologies of uh, American uh, rejection of of the permanence of marriage, the nature of it, the sanctity of human life, and and all the other things that are contrary to really right reason, not just uh, Christian revelation. It reminds me of that passage in Again, John 14, 15, and 16, where he promises the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. that many of our evangelical brothers and sisters take those passages to mean Jesus is talking to Christians in general. 
as opposed to in the context, he is speaking to the apostles. And there is a huge difference because if you take those passages in which he describes, for example, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will guide you into all truth, help them remember all that he said, will help them discern the future. If he's speaking to the apostles, that makes all the sense in the world to why we trust the church, why we believe the scriptures are infallible, because the church was guided. That makes all the sense in the world. If it means more generally to all Christians, then we got a big problem. Because why the confusion? Or to put it differently, what does Jesus want? Does Jesus love us or not? Does he want us to love him? How much? With our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole strength? Or just with some of it? And the answer, the question answers itself. He wants us to love him. And therefore, he wants us to give our wills to him and to uh, subordinate our minds to his mind. And he promises that he'll be with us always or be with his church always. Doesn't that necessarily mean that Jesus Christ, by his authority and by the Holy Spirit he gave his apostles and their successors, will provide to us the means whereby we can know sufficiently what he wishes us to know, and we can, we can form our will sufficiently to the ways in which he wants us to express our love and devotion to him as our Lord and our Savior. And if that's true, then that possibility exists to the end of time. And the only place really that connects to the early church, to the medieval church, to the apostolic church, and to today is the Roman Catholic Church. You know, Protestantism as a entity really is, is faced with one of two possibilities. Either it becomes a least common denominator religion in which you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe or what you do as long as you are part of the group and, and share this sentiment of this historical uh, continuity to something that you don't fully embrace anymore. Or you become rigid and exclusive and say, okay, we have the truth and no one else does, which of course Catholics are often accused of that. And to some extent, it's true. We do claim to have the truth in its fullness, although we also believe that other separated brothers and sisters have the truth to some measure or other, and we can learn very much from them and from their zeal to love Jesus Christ, because the closer we all get to Jesus, the closer we all get to each other. But at the same time, there is a discontinuity between is infant baptism or adult baptism required, or is any baptism required? Are, are you, is, is a serious sin mean that you lose your salvation, or does it mean you were never Christian to begin with, but you didn't know it because you really thought you were? <laughs> you know, their yeah. whole, whole schema of, you know, does predestination mean that God creates some people purely for the intent to show his majesty by condemning them in hell forever, or is there free will? And how free is the free will? Aren't we tainted to some extent by the fall? In fact, let me... We've got about five minutes to go, and I'm going to ask you, why is the church necessary to fulfill a scripture like I'm going to quote? I'm going to throw this so you didn't know this okay. was coming. But just think about why is the church necessary for this? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. Why is the church necessary to fulfill that command of Paul? Because Jesus loves us, and he gives his gifts to us. He doesn't make us orphans, and he feeds us as children. He feeds us with his grace in the Eucharist. He, he, he makes us new creatures. You know, in his baptism, you know, the, the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in the, in the dove where God the Father is heard orally to say, this is my beloved son with whom I will plead. Why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need to be baptized. But what he touches, he transforms, he changed the water. So when we are in the water of baptism, God says the same thing to us, that we become his beloved sons with whom the Father's will please, and the Holy Spirit, which appeared bodily to him, comes upon us. When we receive the children of Abraham, stood in the place of Abraham. So the promises God made to Abraham were promises God made to them. When we receive literally the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, his blood flows through our veins too. And therefore, Jesus' relationship with the Father becomes our relationship with the Father. And Jesus' relationship with his mother becomes our relationship with the mother, which explains Mary. And we, when we receive confirmation, 
you know, that the Holy Spirit comes upon us so that we become fully equipped as, as mature men and women to fight the fight that God has given us to fight with all of our might in, in terms of uh, personal holiness, in ter- terms of showing charity to- towards each other, and in confession, in, in penance. When we fall down, as we do repeatedly, the reason I go to confession is the same reason the Pope does. I need to. <laughs> you know, and that there is a real forgiveness because Jesus gave the church the power to really forgive, and it expresses that. The main functional difference between the Catholic Church and pretty much most other churches, except for the Orthodox, is we believe in sacraments. And we believe that God gives us all of these gifts so that he can draw us towards himself. He can shape us and form us into the creatures that he intended before the beginning of time to make us into as his sons and daughters who are fully in love and fully of one mind with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This passage from 2 Corinthians has always struck me as uh, a, a, a statement of continuity between what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and what Paul is teaching, whereas many of our separated brethren want to make a disconnect as if something was different after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says we are to be perfect mm-hmm. as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Paul says we are to make holiness perfect in the fear of God. And the reason we need a church, as you've been saying, is how do we know whether this lifestyle or that lifestyle or this value or that value or this moral choice or that moral choice makes a difference? And when we have Christian traditions all around us redefining what's good or bad, what's right or wrong, how does a person know if, in fact, they are being made perfect in holiness? And that's where we get to the passage you alluded to early on about the church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. If the church is a purely human institution, that would be blasphemous. Yeah. How, can, how can a purely human institution be the foundation of the truth, which after all is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to Father but through him. The reason is, it is Jesus has two natures, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. What he created as the church also has two natures. It is fully human. We see the corruption in every individual, yep. including ourselves. And, we, and if we look at ourselves clearly, we'll see it there most clearly. Yep. But it is also supernatural. It is something that was created as the spotless bride of Christ, not because of our own merits, but because of the grace of God. And this whole collection of verses which you've brought together, Don, I appreciate because really the, it shows the continuity all through the New Testament, different gospels, different... New Testament writers of this authority that our Lord gave to the church and why we can trust the church versus creating one for ourselves after our own image, which happens all around us. So, Don, thank you very much. I appreciate your not only joining us on this program, but your constant witness in your work as a lawyer fighting the battles out there. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us and having been with us so long on this program. Uh, All the former uh, editions of the Deep in Scripture program can be found on the Coming Home Network website, as well as, I'm sure, at other places around the Internet. Our purpose for this program was to help you appreciate our Lord and His church. God bless you.